Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So we resume our study of Chaye Sarah. We're very near the end of the parasha, and we are on the last pasuk of Perak Kafdalat, which is the very end of the story of finding Rivka and bringing her back to be the wife for Yitzchak. And we did most of the Pasuk of Samach Zion last week. And it says, Yitzchak brought her into the tent, Sarah Imo. As we said last week, strictly speaking, it shouldn't be read as the tent of Sarah, his mother. But we usually do read it like that. Uh, Rashi said, in what way the the tent was the tent of Sarah, his mother. And he took Rivka, and she was to him as a wife. And he loved her. And Yitzchak was comforted after his mother. So the story of the Seder is called Chai Sarah. It begins with the death of Sarah. So we're told here that he was comforted following the death of Sarah, his mother. Now, we, what we left from last week is the last comment of Rashi. The comment of Rashi on the words Acharei Imo says Rashi, Derech Eretz. It's the normal way of the world. Kol zaman imo shel adam kayemet. Whenever a person's mother is alive, he is literally wrapped up with her. And when she dies, he then finds comfort with his wife. He finds uh, consoling condolences with his wife, which implies that he doesn't reach that point of consoling until he is married. So if somebody's wife died, sorry, mother died while they were still unmarried, they wouldn't get to the Nahama, the consolation, until they get married. That's how I read uh, that comment of Rashi, but I have a reason for reading it like that. Why does Rashi need to say this? Why does Rashi need to point this out? Why don't we just say, So it's very nice. He marries Rivka. He's less sad. He's more happy, and he's now comforted. Why does Rashi have to add that? And I think the answer is the chronology. So according to Rashi, Yitzchak was 37 years old at the time of the Akedah. Now, how Rashi doesn't actually say that explicitly, but it's implied, it's proven by the fact that yet Rashi connects the Akeda to the death of Sarah. That Sarah, at the very beginning of Chai Sarah, Rashi said that Sarah was told by the Satan that her son was nearly slaughtered and the last minute was not. And she was so overcome by this that her soul departed. So the important point I want to draw from this is the chronology. So Sarah was 127. At the time she died, Yitzchak was born when Sarah was 90. We know that from Pesukim, so Yitzchak was 37. We also know that Yitzchak gets married at the age of 40. We're told that explicitly in Parashat Toldot. And therefore, we can conclude, according to Rashi, that there are three years between Yitzchak's mother dying and Yitzchak marrying Rivka. And I think Rashi's question is, why therefore does it say, only here, only three years later? What has happened at the end of three years to trigger the Nahama of the consolation for Yitzchak? And the answer is obvious. What's happened is he's got married. And that's what that last part of Pasuk Samachzai is all about. He takes her, he marries her, he loves her, and then he gets Nahama. And therefore Rashi says that it's derecheret, it's the normal way, that when a person's mother dies, they get consolation 
by sort of focusing on their wife, not quite sure what that means, but they get consolation from their wife, but that will only happen when they are married. And so I think Rashi is saying, but the Pasik is saying, for the three years between Sarah's death and his marriage to Rivka, he didn't get Nachama. But what happened? Only after he marries Rivka. And that's what Rashi is then extrapolating as to be the normal way of the world. And the Pasik is telling us that before he got married in those three intervening years, he didn't get Nachama only after he got married. Yes. Can we comment on the Vatilo Isha and then Is that the normal ah, way what, that it is done? What did I say last week? Do you remember? Well, it's reversed. They grew that sort of lab grew. I, I would say the following. Okay, so in this year, that generally, if Rashi doesn't say it, we move on. But I will make the point because I actually made it last week that in every fairy tale, and for that matter, in every romantic film, the, can't, the end point is them getting together. Yeah. It used to be they get married, now today they, they don't. But the end point is they get together. The true way, and the way that's described in this passage is they get married, and then he loves her. Now, I'm sure he loved her before, but the love grew after they got married. And that is, I think, those of us who were married will agree is how it should be. Is that the same way it was for Yaakov as well? Was it in order like that? Or didn't even I think this that? is, as far as my recollection, is this is the only place where it actually talks about a husband loving his wife, which is perhaps another story and perhaps another point of significance. But this is where it says that they loved each other or he loved her. Um, and it pointedly does say uh, after they got married. I mean, perhaps he didn't really know her very well before they got married. It was definitely a shidduch, as we can see very clearly. He didn't know her. Uh, Eliezer tells him about her wonderful attributes. We had that in Pasuk Samachavav, but maybe he didn't know her, but the, 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 either way, the love grew, either the love came or the love grew after they got married. Okay, talking of getting married. So Yitzchak's got married. Abraham joins the party in the next perak, which is a short perak, which is really tying up the end of Abraham's life and the end of our parasha. But Yosef Abraham, Abraham added and he took a wife, Ushma Keturah, and her name was Keturah. And Rashi here says something which changes our perspective of what's going on here. Rashi says, based on the Midrash, Zu Hagar. Keturah, this is Hagar. So it wasn't a new marriage. It wasn't the third marriage after Sarah Hagar Keturah, but it was a repeat of the second marriage. Sarah Hagar. Hagar again under a different name. Ibn Ezra, for instance, is one of those who say, no, no, it was definitely not Hagar. Um, uh, and he points out that um, Abraham married a somebody from Shem, that was Sarah, somebody from Ham, that was Hagar, and somebody from Yafet, that was Keturah. But Rashi says it's the same person we've met before. Now, why does he say this? And perhaps the answer is the interesting word by Yosef. Abraham added. And you can use that in two ways to get to the same point. Either it means he added by going on what he'd done before, uh, or, or like, sorry, he continued. That's what I meant to say, Abraham that he continued proceeded. what he'd done before. What? Abraham proceeded and took a word. Okay. Uh, you can't always be that medaic from the Arsenal translation, or from any translation for that matter. So Abraham added, obviously, but Yosef, Musaf means he added. So either he added to his previous connection to Hagar by continuing it, mm-hmm. or um, it can't mean he added onto his existing wife because she was no longer alive. Had Sarah been alive, you could say he added a wife. 
But you can't say he added a wife to the existing wives because at that time he was a widower. So Yosef must mean that he added what he had before or he continued to do what he had before. So it weren't really two ways. It was basically one way. He continued to do what he did before. Now, that's the first part of Rashi. Now, why is she called Keturah if she's Hagar? Now, by the way, this is not unknown. In fact, it's very common. And certainly in the, in the Gemara, very, very often, the Gemara will say, these two people in the Tanakh, they're the same person. And then the Gemara will have to explain why the name has changed. So here, she is Hagar. So why is she called Keturah? Says Rashi, She's called Keturah because her deeds are as pleasant as Ketoret. Ketoret is incense. It smells beautiful. It uh, perfumes and permeates the Bet Mikdash, and it could be smelled as far as Yericho, says the Gemara, and it was really, really nice. So Ketoret is something that's really, really nice, and she's called Keturah because her deeds are like Ketoret. And then he says, she tied her opening, which I won't be too specific, but what it means is, she did not have relations with any other man from the day that she separated from Abraham. So she became Abraham's wife. She had relations with Abraham and she didn't, if you like, downgrade herself thereafter by having relations with anybody else. So Keturah is related to Kashara. She tied, she tied together, she tied her opening. Now, um, what, what's the connection between Kashara, she tied, and Katura? Uh, the answer is one is the Aramaic translation of the other. And if you look at Perak Lamad Chet, Pasat Kaf Chet. Perak Lamad Chet, Kaf Chet. It's the end of the story of Yehuda and Tamar. And at the very end of the story, a baby is born and he puts out his hand and the midwife ties a string around his hand. And the midwife deposit says, the tikshor, she tied. And if you look at the targum, ukatarat. So katar is the translation of kishor. By the way, usually the letter shift from Hebrew to Aramaic is a shin becomes a taf, but sometimes a shin becomes a tet. So kashar becomes katar. Why do we need two explanations of Rashi? So um, as we know, whenever Rashi brings two explanations, it's because neither is quite sufficient. So what I found is the suggestion that according to the first explanation, um, if she, her deeds are like katoret, she could, should be called katoret or she should be called Ketorah. Ketorah. I'm not quite sure of the uh, grammar here, but Muscular David says it would have been Ketorah if she's just named after Ketoret. And according to the second explanation, she could, should be called Kashira. Why do we have to go into Aramaic? So Neva fully, perfectly explained why we end up with Keturah. So maybe that's why we need both. Now, We've said her deeds were very good, but if we look in Perikaf Aleph Pasuk Yudalad, we might question that. Perikaf Aleph Pasuk Yudalad. So she's expelled from the house of Abraham and Sarah. Um, uh, yes, but. 
Kaf Aleph Yud Dalet. That's what I meant. Yeah. Actually, it's implied in Kaf Aleph Kaf Aleph, which is why I mistakenly was looking. But if you look at, yeah, Kaf Aleph Yud Dalet. So, Ve'ashkem Avraham Baboka Ve'yakach Lechem Ve'chemat Mayim Ve'yatein El Hagar Sam Al Shichma. Avraham gave her basic provisions, put on her shoulder Ve'yatayelad and the lad. That's Yishmael. Ve'yishal Cheha, and he sent her away. Ve'telech, and she went. Ve'teita Ve'midbar. So what's the teita? So we usually translate it as wandered. But what does Rashi say there? The teita, teilech the teita. Chazra legulule beit aviha. She returned to the idols of her father's house. So we have a problem here because Rashi there said she returned to the idols of her father's house, and here it says. Um, the deeds were as pleasant as Ketoret. So maybe she did Teshuva. That's one possibility. Maybe if you look very carefully in that other passage, Kafal of Yudalat, it said, Rashi says Chazra, but on the context of the Telech, the Teta, she went and she erred. We talked about this when we learned that uh, Perak, the Teta is a combination of she made a mistake and she wandered which are not quite the same word. One's got a ted and one's got a tough, but they're related. Um, but you could read that as she was like going in that direction, but didn't go there. And why wouldn't she go there? Because what happened next in the story? She's runs out of water. But then what happens? Hashem sends her a message and sends her a well of water. And the malach appears to her and says, and she lifts up her eyes, opens up her eyes, and there is the water that she needs, and she needs to bring her son back to life and herself, etc. So maybe in Pasuk Yadalat, she's wandering towards idolatry, but she doesn't go there. Um, and it works quite nicely because of the, of the uh, order of that story, that she's wandering, but then she's saved. And she's saved at the well, and then she has the appearance of the Malach, and she's, she's obviously gratified that she has the appearance of the Malach, so maybe that fits in with the Rashi here, to say that her deeds were as nice as Ketorah because she didn't actually make it all the way back to idolatry. I have written out. I mean, like, I would expect Naim to be with an eye. That's pleasant. Um, oh, it's not meant to be pleasant. No, how? Uh, Darche Noam. Yeah. Yes. It's with an iron. Yes. With an yes. So it's just shenaim just means hadith. something Does that mean similar. Hadith? Yeah, I think so. I but you're right. First, it is like shenaim, like hadith to despise. No, no, oh, it doesn't mean that. No, 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 definitely not. <laughs> definitely not. Um, good point. I don't know. You're, so it's not. It's not a my curious thing. They're all. With no, it, they're all with an aleph. But um, um, I'm presuming and I'm sort of guessing that naim with an aleph is like the same as naim with an ayin. But I don't know why. Okay. Okay. Naim. It means pleasant. Yes. Yes. Okay. Pasuk bet. There's no Rashi, but we'll read it. The tailed lo et zimran, the et yakshan, the et madan, the et midyan, the et yishbak, the et shuach. So she bore him those six children. So Abraham had, by the way, eight children. We often forget about the last six. And then it says in Pasuk Gimel, the yakshan yalad et shavah, the et dadan. Now, I will refer you to the Unculus. Now, Unculus normally translates names verbatim. He doesn't normally change names. If you look at um, Pasuk Bet, for instance, those are all the same names as we have letter for letter, vowel for vowel, 
as we have in the Hebrew. But in Pasuk Gimel, he does something different. Um, on the last three names, uh, which the Hebrew says, Uvenei Dadan, Hayu Ashurim Ulatushim Ula Umim, Onkelos has Uvenei Dadan, Havo Le Mashirinyan, the Lishkonan, sorry, Lishkunin, Ula Nagvan. And Rashi says, sorry, first of all, Rashi says, Shem Roshe Umat. These are the names of the heads of the nations. So it doesn't mean that Dadan had children called Ashurim, Rotushim, Ula Umim, but rather he had children who were heads of these nations. And perhaps that's because they're written apparently in the plural. Now that's not decisive because singular name, names of singular individuals sometimes look plural. But here, all three of them look very plural. So he's saying that the children were the heads of these nations. But then he says, Ainli le yashva al, sorry, the Targum shall unculus, Ainli le yashva al loshan hamikra. When it comes to unculus, I cannot settle literally the language of unculus with the language of the scripture itself. Shaperash, because he explains le mashirin, loshan machane, le mashirin, mashirin, sorry, as an expression of camping. So, Aramaic for like a caravan, like journeys through the desert is a sharia. So uh, Onkelos is connecting Ashurim to Mashiryan, and Rashi explains that it means travelers. And Rashi says it doesn't fit. Now, why doesn't it fit? First of all, why is Rashi telling us? So I've said many times before that Rashi has this slightly um, curious relationship with Onkelos, but basically he expects you to be reading Onkelos as well as reading Rashi. Occasionally, he will go out of his way to explain Onkelos. Also, probably more often, he will go out of his way to say that Onkelos is very good, but it doesn't quite fit. It doesn't quite fit the Hebrew language. He'll always be respectful, by the way, in the way he talks about Onkelos. Oh, uh, a thousand. A thousand? Oh, yeah. Okay. Onkelos is roughly the year zero. Rashi is the year 1100, so 1100 years. Um, but Onkelos is a very important source. Onkelos is a Tana. He comes from the time of the Mishnah. He's the first and uh, translation and therefore interpretation of the Chumash that we have. And he's up there with the Tanaim. So it's a very, very important source. So Rashi occasionally will say, respectfully, Unculus has chosen not to quite fit in with the actual precise words here. He's gone off a little bit in a non-literal way. And that's what he's doing here. Now, why does he not accept Onkelos's translation. Now, at this point, I should say, the next part of the Rashi, you may or may not have in your text, because what he did, from the, following from the words Im Tomar, I don't know if you've got Im Tomar. The Im Tomar. You've got the Im Tomar there? Yeah. In the art scroll, have you got the Im Tomar? Yes. yes, okay. Have you got it in brackets? No. Okay, it should be in brackets, because it is not part of any original text of Russian. Right. And, and scholars will confirm that. It's not just a... You know, the editors say it doesn't fit, but it also doesn't fit because what Rashi does in those next section is defend Onkelos and say how Onkelos could be right, mm. which doesn't fit at all with Rashi's opening words to say, listen, I can't fit Onkelos. I can't. Um, so I think I'm going to do something which I hope is legit. We're not going to go through that section. It's not because it's very grammatical, but because it's not Rashi and it, it's not necessary. Um, and it's when Rashi tries to defend Onkelos. But I will point out, how does Rashi try to defend Onkelos? Or this apparent, someone 
who's uh, fitting into the Rashi text, but isn't really Rashi. He talks about the presence or absence of the Aleph of Ashurim. So you might think that Rashi's problem is what's happened to the Aleph. By translating Ashurim as Mashirian, he Onkelos has dropped the Aleph. And the non-Rashi that's found its way into Rashi shows that sometimes there is an Aleph in a word in one sense, but the Aleph drops out in other senses. So that's how that um, Unculus could be okay. He could translate the word with an Aleph as if it's a word without an Aleph. But that may not be Unculus's, uh, Rashi's main problem with Unculus. It's not that he's managed without the Aleph. He's added another letter before the word Mashirian and before the word uh, Shechunin and before the word uh, Nagvan. And what is that letter? Lamud. So Rashi, okay, let, sorry, let me go back to stage. There's another problem in our verse with the word Hayu. Bnei Dadan, Hayu, Ashurim, Ulatushim, Ulaumim. What does it mean, Bnei Dadan? Normally, the Pasuk wouldn't say Hayu. It would just say the children of Dadan. Exactly. And that's what it does in many, many places. So it means they were. So they were Ashurim, Ulatushim, Ulaumim. They were the trade. Ah, oh, okay, that's that's Unclus. That's Unclus. Well, that's close to Unclus. Rashi, it fits with Rashi. I should have said this earlier. Shame, Roshe, Umot. It's the names of the heads of the nations. So they were the heads of these nations. That's the Hayu. They were of these nations. But Unculus adds the Lamut as if they say they evolved into how he translates Mashirian. They evolved into Shechunin and they evolved into Nagvan. That's his Lamut. So Hayu, Allah, they became. Mm -hmm. But Rashi says they didn't, that's the positive, it doesn't say they evolved into. They were Ashurim Latushim Ulaumim. It doesn't refer to their trades, doesn't refer to their characteristic. It just refers to their names of their tribes. Mm -hmm. So it could be the Aleph, but having said that, it's hard to say it's the Aleph that he doesn't include in his translation of Ashurim because the next section, which is not really Rashi, but defends how you can manage without an Aleph. But I think the bigger problem is this Lamut that Unculus is saying they evolved into people who were Mashirian, who were campers. And Rashi doesn't accept that it means they evolved into, but rather they were the heads of the tribes. Okay. Um, but he does explain uh, Latushim. I forget whether this is Rashi or non-Rashi. Um, have you got anyone? Have you even got brackets? No, not for that. You haven't got, have you got brackets anywhere? No. Okay. So I'm not sure if it's Rashi or non Rashi, but we'll read it. Maybe it's Rashi. Ulatushim, Haim Bale Ohalim. So Latushim means a profession or a characteristic. They are tent people. Hamit Pazrin, Anava Anna, who are scattered here and there. Venosim Ishba Oholo Afadno. And each man travels literally with the palace. Of his uh, the the tents of his palace, um, no and that's. No, I do have brackets. Sorry. You do have brackets. They were just hidden. Ah. No, they start at Shapiresh, like even before the Imtamar, and it's all still in brackets. Yeah. And where does it finish? Um, Yeah. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. That makes sense because this to say Latushim is not a name, but is a profession, is Unculus style. Sure. So this is still explaining Unculus, okay. which the true Rashi started off by saying, you can't do. Sorry, All right. Answering in the negative. So since I've started this, I'll finish. 
So this is to explain Unkelos, who translates Matushim as people who dwell in tents. And that's why the Aramaic is Shachunim, as in Mishkan, as in tent. So this is definitely right. This is definitely explaining Unkelos, which means it's not Russian. Okay. Heim bale ohalem ha'mitpazrim anaba anaba nosim ish ba'ohalei afpadno. In the tents of, each person travels with the tents of his palace. Um, and that is a uh, a uh, abbreviated quote from a pasuk somewhere I forget where, um, uh, and it just implies that there doesn't. I don't think it means palaces. It just means they, their dwelling is their tent. And we also find in Shmuel Aleph about people who are natushim on the face of all the earth. The lamad in the pasuk latushim. Swaps with the nun of Nutushim in the Passover of Shmuel Aleph. So that's why it's the Unculus translates of Latushim as people who dwell, i.e., in tents, like in the Mishkan, it fits. But Rashi doesn't follow that. Let's move on. Passover Ta'alot. Uvene Midian, Eifa, the Eifer, the Hanach, the Avida, the El Da'ar, Kol Eila, Bene Keturah. So Midian also had five children. Notice, by the way, it just says, B'nai Mijan, and then he gives a list. No Hayu. So that's why the Hayu in the previous Pasuk was exceptional and needed commentary. So Keturah has lots of children and great children and great-grandchildren, and that's all the descendants of Keturah. V'yitain Avraham et kol asher lo now, we were really in, Abraham is putting his affairs in order before he's going to die in the, very, very soon. He gives everything, kol asher lo Yitzchak. Rashi has an interesting comment. V'yatein Abraham, Amar Rabbi Nechemia, birkat dayateke, blessing of dayateke, which means basically his will, or maybe say his legacy. It's a contraction of the Aramaic for da tehe kai, this should be standing. This should be. This should endure. Hmm. When a so that's why it's a word for a will because the will determines what possessions are given and are kept in the hands of the recipients. So he gave him a blessing of a will, or of a legacy. Perhaps is easier to understand. What does that mean? Natanlo. Sorry, that's what he gave to him. Sha'amarlo akarish baruchu la Avraham. Abraham said to Av- Hashem said to Abraham, you will be a blessing. Now, what does that mean? That was back in the beginning of Lech Lecha, when Hashem first spoke to Abraham. So what does it mean? You will be a blessing. The blessings are handed over into your hand. To bless whomever you want. And Abraham then passed that blessing blessing, that legacy of a blessing, to Yitzchak. So he gave him basically the power to bless. Hashem said to Abraham, you will be a blessing, i.e. you will have the power to bless. And Abraham used that power, and now he's handing that over as a legacy to Yitzchak. Why does Rashi say this? Why doesn't Rashi say? He gave him lots of money. He gave him lots of wealth. Any answers? Maybe if we look at Perak Kaftalot, Pasuk, Yud, we might see an answer. Perak Kaftal and Pasuk Yud. So when Eliezer sets off to uh, Haran to look for a wife, 
it says, All the goodness of his master was in his hand. Says Rashi, how can it be that all the goodness of the master was in his hand? Eliezer doesn't have an infinitely big hand to carry all the wealth of Abraham. So it doesn't mean that literally all the wealth was in his hand. Says Rashi, Shtar matana ketav al kol asher lo. A document of gift Abraham had written to Yitzchak on everything that was his. So now it becomes very clear. Abraham can't be giving him money now in Peret Cafe because he's already given him everything in Peret Cafe. And therefore, what is he giving him now? Something which is not material, something which is else, I mean, which is the power to give blessings. The one thing which cannot be included in that star, he now hands over to him. Incidentally, there are different girsa'ot of this. There are different textual readings. Um, one, um, there are different opinions in the Gemara, oh, sorry, in the Midrash. Did he give him money? Did he give him a bracha? Did he give him a diyateke? Uh, Did he give him a will? And one version of Rashi says, bracha udiyateke. He gave him a blessing and he gave him a will, combining two of the ideas. Uh, the text that I've got, I think most people have, um, doesn't do that in two ways. First of all, Amar Rabbi Nachamya, he quotes one of the opinions, so he's not going to mix him with another opinion. And secondly, he calls it bracha um, birkat, that's deyateke, the blessing of the legacy, implying it's one thing. Actually, I've got a note in my books, other books say bracha udiyateke, two things, a blessing and a legacy. But that won't work, by the way, if you're quoting it in the name of Rabbi Nachamya. Because Rabbi Nechamia's view is he gave him the power to bless and nothing else. So if you say it's Amar Rabbi Nechamia, you must say it's Birkat Deyateki, the blessing of the legacy, and not blessing and legacy. You would think that Hashem is the only one who could pass that power across, not Abraham. Good point. Apparently not. Apparently part of the gift to Abraham was the power to bequeath it. And then Rashi says... Oh, no, that's someone explaining. Okay. Uh, that's, that continues, uh, that finishes. Hey, let's go on to Vav. And to the children of the concubines who were to Abraham, Natan Abraham Matanot. Abraham gave presents or gifts, and he sent them away from Yitzhak, his son, while he, Abraham, was still alive. Kedma to the east, El Eretz Kedem, to the land of the east. And that is why we don't know anything more about these six children, their descendants. They're pushed away from Yitzchak, clear emphasis in the Basak, but Yitzchak's here, they have to go far away from Yitzchak and they don't come back. Having said that, one of those sons is Midian. And Midian we certainly know about, and Midian does have interactions with the Bnei Israel in subsequent history, but the rest of them disappear. Even Madan. Well, uh, one of them is Medan. Medanim with Yosef. Yes, and <laughs> Yosef was sold to the Medanim, but almost nobody seems to be bothered whether it's Medanim or Mijanim, yeah. and assumes it's Mijanim. Almost nobody is bothered by the switch between Medanim and Mijanim. Probably like collaboration of the slighted brothers. Maybe. You know, like 
Maybe. Favorite child, brother versus non-favorite. It's very reminiscent of, of what the other of himself. Yeah. So Medan does it, but Midjan gets the credit. <laughs> like maybe. Or the other way around. They're both there. Yeah. I mean, the descendants are both there, but it's like Yosef and his brother, like Yosef's brothers, conspiring against a favorite child. And yep. Interesting. Yeah. Interesting. Okay. Now, what does he? Oh, sorry. First of all, happy luxury. So Rashi says something which is for some people very problematic, but not for others. Because Rashi says, Hapilakshim, Chaser Ketiv. It's written, Chaser. Something's missing. Because it was actually only one Pilegesh who he Hagar, he Ketura. If you read the story, you might think there were two Pilegeshim. There was only one. And that is why it's written Chaser, i.e., without the second Yud. So it's not Pilegeshim, it's Pilegeshim without the Yud. Okay, what's the problem? The problem is, in our Sifrei Torah, it's got a Yud. I didn't take out every Sefer Torah in Shul to check, but I'm pretty sure it's got a Yud. And this is not the only example. There are a few quite explicit examples of where Rashi's Sefer Torah was not the same as ours. Now, some people um, uh, cling to the idea that the Sefer Torah is perfect and every letter that we have was the same as Moshe Rabbeinu had. That clearly is not the case. First of all, there is at least one difference between Ashkenazim and Sephardim, and there's six differences, I think, between Ashkenazim and Taimanim, who probably got a more authentic tradition. But we can also say that this is an example, and there's at least a few more, I forget exactly the number, of where Rashi says, the Sefer Torah is, I've got a big letter or a small letter, or it's got a missing letter, and our Sifrei Torah don't. So Rashi's Sefer Torah was a little bit different. And some people mistakenly say, oi, 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 this yeah. doesn't make any sense, because from every single letter, we might learn a Gezeira Shava, we might learn one of the hermeneutical rules, and that will change the whole nature of, of Halacha and the Torah Shavar That's a mistake, because when we learn a Gezeira Shava, um, what that does is confirm what the Torah Shavar said. It doesn't prove what the Torah Shavar said. The Torah Shavar is a whole list of mnemonics and hints and allusions to remind us of what the parallel version, sorry, the Torah Shabbat said. It is not the case if you take one letter out of the Torah, the Torah Shabbat falls apart. The Torah Shabbat is always there, and the Torah's got ways of reminding us about the Torah Shabbat. And if one letter's missing, and one letter's different from Rashi's letter, they will learn it in a different way. That's why it's actually not so terrible. Um, and there's no way around this. Um, this is an example. There are others to say, either Rashi say the Torah is right and ours is wrong, or the other way around. But we'll stick to Amasora. Amasora is to put the Yud in Pelagshim. Okay, but what Rashi has to say is nice. Yeah. And yeah. Rashi said makes sense because Rashi is the one who said Keturah is Hagar, so it's not Pelagshim in the plural. And that's why, according to Rashi, it works very nicely. But the word is not Pelagshim in the normal plural. It's close to plural, but not quite. Which sort of fits with like two identities, Keturah and Hagar, but they're the same person. Okay. Um, then Rashi says, Nashim the Ketubah, Pilagshim below Ketubah. What is the difference between a wife and a concubine? If you ever wondered, Rashi tells you, they're pretty much the same. They both get married, and that's crucial, but one gets a Ketubah and one does not. Just by the way, according to the Rambam, we, nobody can have Ketubah, sorry, uh, Pilagshim anymore unless you're a king. Um, we actually only find Pelagshim after the Torah was David. given by David Amalek and Kings. Um, 
And the Rambam says there's no such thing as a relationship with a Pelegesh that's not if you're not a king. Shlomo must have had 70. 700, I think. Oh. Yeah, 300 wives, 700 Pelagshim. So, but Rashi says, what is the difference between a wife and a concubine? It's this. Nashim b'ketubad, Pelagshim below ketubad. As we see in Sanhedrin, and it's very relevant that the source for the whole idea of Palagshim, as the Gemara learns, is Benashim u Palagshim the David. David Hamelach had wives, he had concubines. That's where, that's if you like, the source for the idea of a distinction between the two. So there's no gift either. No, I think, I, no, no, no. I don't, I'm not sure. But the point is, and, and the Gemara, Rashi is actually, as he often does, is giving you one opinion from the Gemara. There's another opinion that says the Pegalegish doesn't have Kiddushin, like betrothal either. Rashi is of the opinion that she certainly does have Kiddushin. She just doesn't have a Ketubah. So it seems to, I'm guessing, because I, I don't remember the Sugya, that if she has Kiddushin, she has a Get. She just doesn't get a Ketubah with it. Now, why does Rashi want to say this? I'll tell you why. Because look back to Perik Kafei Pasigalov. What's the verb? To... Vayikach. He took her. That's Kedushin. Kicha, Kicha. We learn the whole idea of Kedushin from the use of the word Kicha by Yisrael Efron. Um, so Kicha is definitely a, like a clear indication that there was a Kedushin. So if Rashi's saying, and it's on the, the, in Pasuk Vav, that Ketura is described as a Pelegesh, that's why Rashi on Pasuk Vav has to say that, it, I, yeah, I agree, Keturah is a Pelegesh. I'm the one I Rashi said, Keturah is the Pelegesh. Um, but in Pasuk Aleph, it says by Yekach. So is there a contradiction? That's why Rashi has to say there's not a contradiction. Because a Pelegesh is somebody who's married by Yekach, but she's a Pelegesh because she is without a Ketubah. Um, someone to say Pelegesh is Peleg Isha. Peleg is half. Peleg half where? In Hebrew? Yeah, Hamincha. Ah, okay. Okay. Miflaga. Um, well, Miflaget is an Israeli political party because it's separate from the rest of the parties. But Plag Hamincha is halfway through Mincha Katana. Um, so she's half a woman, not because she's half a woman, but because she's half a wife. Okay, she's got half the qualities of half the status of a wife, but not the other half of the status of a wife. <clears throat> okay, we now need to see what did he give to the um, Bnei Keturah, Bnei Hagar. He gave Matanot. Now, we've already said that he gave a bracha to Yitzchak. And we've said that he couldn't have given money to Yitzchak because he's already given him everything. So what else can he give to the Bnei Keturah? So look at Rashi. Perushu Rabotainu. Our rabbis explained, Shem Tuma, the name of impurity, Masar Lahem, he handed to them. Now, this is very, very strange. But it's not so strange if you go with the standard explanation of what Rashi means. He gave them the knowledge to deal with Tuma, but the sort of Tuma that they're going to encounter. Now, where does he send them? He sends them to the east, to the places of strange gods and strange sorcery, and he gives them the tools to deal with it. So either he gives them a knowledge of the Avodah Zorah they're going to encounter, uh, or, and if you don't mind talking about sorcery, he gives them the tools to deal with the witchcraft and weird things that they will encounter. And that is shame Tumma. And incidentally, it works very nicely. It parallels very nicely with what Yitzchak gets. Yitzchak gets something Ruchni, 
he doesn't get something physical, material. He gets the power to give blessings. So on the other side, setting off for their other branch of their history, he gives them something ruchni that they will need to deal with the environment they're going to encounter. <clears throat> then Rashi says, there's another explanation. Now, um, I said a little while ago, and I say many times, that whenever Rashi gives two explanations, we have to find the reason for each one. I can't find the reason why there's two. Like the first one. It's, it's, oh, okay. And so it's still in brackets here? Yes. Okay. Interesting. Um, that doesn't really help, because then you've still got the two answers within the brackets. Normally before then. We may we don't demand the same. Maybe we don't rather the same. Okay. Okay. Usually before the Dave the first one's a better explanation. Not necessarily better. Uh, not necessarily better. Um, some of the Foshim, I often quote at this point the muscular David, because he never lets me down except he did on this case. He's he's one he will always zero in on the deficiency in the first answer, which is made up in the second answer, and then vice versa. Sifter okay. Khamim often does that as well, not quite so rigorously. But this time the um Muscular David didn't, as far as I could see, and nor could I see anybody else. But maybe okay. if it's in brackets, although I didn't read that, if it's not authentic Rashi, maybe we don't have to be so rigorous. Anyway, what is the Dabar lo. The things that he was given because of Sarah, or on behalf of Sarah, and the other things that were given to him, Hakol Natan Lahem. He gave all of it to them, mehem, because he didn't want to benefit from them. The, the starting point is what Abraham said to Melech Saddam. After he rescued Melech Saddam in the war between the four kings and the five kings, that's right. So Melech Saddam said, I want to keep the people because I don't want you to influence them, but you can take the money. Sorry, you can, yeah, you can take the money. And Abraham says, I will not take anything. I won't take a shoelace. So that seems to mark Abraham's view of the material benefits that other people want to give him. So the question is, but he was given lots of things when Sarah was taken by Paro and then given back. Paro gave him uh, wealth and servants and camels, the whole kit and caboodle. So how come he can take whatever he needs from Sarah, from Paro? for Paro, as it were, making recompense for the terrible crime of kidnapping Sarah, but he won't take what he's, you could argue, legitimately earned in the service of the king of Saddam. So Rashi now answers that to say all those things that were given to him, he never touched and he never wanted to get benefit from them. And that means even though, this is very clever, he's given everything, everything to Yitzchak, there are some things that he hasn't given. How can he give everything but not give everything? Answer, he hasn't given those things from which he gets no benefit. And, and we know halakhically, I mean, I'm not trying to make a pill ball here, but something you don't get benefit from, you don't own, like Chometz on Pesach. Um, how can we be punished for owning Chometz on Pesach when Chometz is something we can get no benefit from? And the answer is the Torah put it back in our possession. Chometz on Pesach is an exception. Um, normally, if something is something from which you cannot get benefit, milk and meat, for instance, you no longer own it. But Chometz, you don't own until the Torah puts it back into your possession and says you mustn't own it, you must get rid of it. So if, he, if, if, yeah, if, if Abraham is not going to get any benefit from these goods, from the, they're not his. From Paro's stuff. From Paro's stuff. Okay. Then it's not his. And that's how he can give everything that is his to Yitzchak. And yet he can still have these things left over. 
and that he gives them to the B'nai Keturah and like gets rid of them. Okay, Pasuk Zion. And I said, we're leading up to Abraham's expiry. And here it is. These are the days of the years of the life of Abraham, which he lived. Yes, it is. Me'at shana, v'shivim shana, v'chamesh shanim. A hundred years and 70 years and five years. Now, you will remember, I'm sure, how Rashi darshan on the hundred years and the 20 years and the seven years of Sarah. And Rashi does more or less the same thing here. On the words, Me'at shana v'shivim shana v'chamesh shanim. Ben me'a keben shivim. When he's a hundred, he's like 70. Uben shivim keben chamesh. And when he's 70, he's like five below chet, without sin. Oh, so in brackets, it says bakoach to say that when he's 100, he's like 70 in strength. By the way, most people in our day of, who are 70 years old wouldn't regard being 70 as the epitome, the pinnacle of strength. But for Abraham, it was. By the way, when he was 70, roughly the time, it, uh, there's a calculation that the war between the kings, which, in which he was like running the show, he was 73 at the time. The, the war was a four against the five. Who won the war? They... Um, the four subdued the five. But then, but then Abraham came in on behalf of the five and subdued the four. And in particular, he freed Melech Saddam and Lot, which is why he got involved in the battle, because Lot was taken prisoner. Um, and if uh, it's a complicated uh, calculation, and it's funny, but it ends up earlier than 75, which is when he first came to Israel, apparently, but maybe it wasn't the first time he came to Israel. Anyway, he, let's say he was in his 70s. Um, so there he is, like leading armies or fighting single-handed if he didn't have an army, if he just had Eliezer, and defeating four mighty kings when he's 70, so in his 70s. So it makes sense that perhaps 70 is the time for his koach. So it, it would be nice to say that, or one way of saying it is to use the word in brackets, he's 100, like when he's like, so when he's 100, he's like when he's 70 in terms of koach, and he's 70 like when he's five in terms of sin. If you don't have the word koach, what does it mean, ben meak ben shivim? So it sounds like the two comparisons are both in relation to sin or lack of sin. So why is 70 lack of sin? Because you, you don't get courage anymore. Because you don't get judged by the Bet Din Shamala before, before the Torah was given until you're 100. Rashi said that about the age at which um, the, the fact that the three sons of Noah were not yet 100 before the Mabal. So they weren't punished. They weren't liable for yeah. punishment. So when's this current? I thought current. No, it's not current. It's current, just oh, current cuts off at sixty then. No, current cuts off at a certain age. I didn't think current cut off a particular age. It's just before one's time. Okay. All right. Okay. Anyway, so you could say this is still before the Torah was given. So when he's seventy, he's not liable for punishment, and so even when he's a hundred, when he is liable for punishment. He's as unliable because he hasn't sinned. So when he's a hundred. He's like seventy. In which case, why do we need to say like five? I, because there's two levels of non-culpability. When he's 70, you might say he's not liable, but that doesn't actually mean he's perfect. It just means almost on a technicality, he can't be punished. But when he's five, we all understand the innocence of a five-year-old child has no sin. So not only when he's 100, not only is he like 70, like he's technically not liable, but he's actually like when he's five, when he's absolutely innocent. So for all his life, he is innocent. Now, why does 
Rashi split up um, the years and darshan each one separately. Well, that won't work because when Yishmael dies, not far away. Yes, in Yud Zion. Turn over the page. Split up, and there's no split, there's no comment. So it's not because of the repetition of the word Shana. So maybe it's because of the Asher Chai. So the Asher Chai links all the word all the years together. And in which case, why does the Torah then split them up? So because it says Asher Chai, it's one single unit. And if it's one single unit, why then is it not one single unit? Hence Rashi's comment. And you don't find any sort of Asher Chai or Shnei Chaye Sarah by Yishmael. Okay, so let's move on to Pasuk Chet. He expired, and he died. Um, in a couple of Pasukim, hence Rashi will say why it says Vayigva, but in a different context. Anyway, Abraham died, Vaseva Tova, at a ripe old age. Zakeh, old, the surveyor, and satisfied, the Yasef El Amav, and he was gathered to his people, i.e., he was, well, either he was buried or he died. And the next verse says, and they buried him, Yitzchak and Yishmael Banav, his sons, El Ma'arata Machpela, literally two Ma'arata Machpela, El Sudei Avron Ben Soha. The field of Ephron ben Soha, Hachiti vechitai, Asher al penei Mamre, which is on the face of Mamre. And I'll just read the next passage in Yud. It says, Hasadeh Asher Kana Abraham me'ait penei chait Shama Kuvar Abraham v'sare Ishto, the field which he acquired, Abraham acquired from the penei chait. There, um, Abraham was buried, and Sarah, his wife. It's just interesting no. that from the moment Marat Machpelah is bought, at the beginning of Perak Kaf or in Perak Kaf Gimel, it becomes central. And the Torah tells us that Abraham is buried there. And we know that Yaakov makes a big issue, how important it is to be buried there. And when he asks Yosef to make sure that Yosef buries him in Marat Machpelah, he repeats this whole story of how Abraham acquired Marat Machpelah. So it wasn't the case before Perakaf Gimel because there was no Marat Machpelah. But suddenly once it's born, it becomes very, very central and, and very important. But we remember that that's the place that Abraham is buried. Anyway, back to Rashi on Tet. Um, what does Rashi say on Tet? On the word Yitzchak the Yishmael. Mikan sha'asa Yishmael teshuva v'holich et Yitzchak lefanav. From here we see that Yishmael did teshuva and let Yitzchak go in front of him. Yishmael was the older son. According to Rashi, they were arguing as children about the inheritance. In other words, Yishmael didn't accept that Yitzchak had was in any way a greater status than he, Yishmael. Of course, Yishmael is of a lower status because he's the son of the Pelegesh and Yishmael, Yitzchak is the son of the wife. But we were told in, uh, when, when Yitzchak was born and, and uh, uh, Yishmael was trying arrows at him, according to Rashi, it was about the inheritance because Yitzchak, sorry, Yishmael did not accept that he was junior to Yitzchak. Yet here he does. Now, and therefore Rashi says, Yishmael is clearly acknowledging Yitzchak as the senior son, even though he's younger. This is Yishmael's teshuva. How do we know that's the case? Because it says because it says Yitzchak Yeah, but maybe maybe the, okay. When you go in, the, when you're walking to the Bet Kavarim, 
Are you very much bid who's in front of whom? Maybe Yitzchak was happened to be walking in front. Maybe Yitzchak happened to be walking in front. Maybe there's no significance in the order of names. You have to put one name first. Maybe it's Yitzchak first. Maybe it's Ishmael first. How do I know it's significant? Ah, I'll tell you how I know it's significant. Because what about when Yitzchak is buried? What happens when Yitzchak is buried? That's the question. At the end of Perak Lamad Hay. No, no, not quite. Lamad Hay Kaftet. By Yigva Yitzchak, Yitzchak expired, same word we saw of Abraham. And he died. And he was gathered to his people. Zaken. Similar Lashon. He was old and satisfied in days. So now we see that sometimes the bad son comes first and sometimes the so-called bad son comes second. And why does the bad son come first in the case of Esau and Yaakov? Because Esau never did Teshuvah. So by comparing the two here, in this Pasuk, it puts the, let's call him the senior son, senior by status, first. So you might think, before Rashi, you might think, okay, he's put first because he's the senior son by status. But by the death of Yitzchak, it's not the senior son by status who is listed first. It's the other son. It's the son who's not deserving. It's the son who is firstborn, but shouldn't be firstborn. And the Torah court puts it in the order of Esau and Yaakov. So now we see the order is significant. So we see that Esau pushed himself in front of Yaakov, but we see that Yishmael did not push himself in front of Yitzchak. It's also the case that Rashi goes on and says... It's not a sign of Teshuvah, it's a sign that they're reconciled, maybe. Yitzchak and Yishmael. doesn't have necessarily need to... Okay, so now you're asking an interesting question. How does Rashi extrapolate from this that Yishmael did Teshuvah? So how do we know that Yishmael Ishmael is an all-round good guy. So it seems to me, and this is what I was stressing, but what do we know that Ishmael did wrong? Rashi has told us, that, well, okay, Rashi told us a few things. Um, but what do we, no, maybe, maybe. Beferish, not much. But, uh, okay, but something I can tell you, Beferish. Um, why was Ishmael sent away? Because of uh, Abraham wanted him to bury No, 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 it's not true. Because Sarah, Sarah sent him away and told, and Hashem told Abraham to um, agree with what Sarah said, um, because she didn't want him to be inheriting with Yitzchak. And I can find the words. It's Kaf Aleph. Yeah, Kaf Aleph Yud. Kaf Aleph Yud. La Abraham. Sarah said to Abraham, Garesh Hazot, send out this maidservant, Bert Bana and her son. Kilo Yirash Ben Hazot in Bani in Yitzchak. So that's why I say that the issue is the inheritance. Who's going to inherit? So maybe you can say it's a proxy indicator for Yishmael's general disposition, or maybe you can say, it's the key thing from which everything else follows. But the question of who's going to be considered the senior son is critical to what went wrong with Yishmael. And therefore, when Yishmael concedes that role to Yitzchak, 
it sounds like everything's okay. And maybe that explains why Rashi jumps to he did Teshuvah. I just want to say, and then we'll finish, the last part of Rashi on Tet, this is the good old age that was said to Abraham. So Rashi is again saying uh, that that last comment is if you highlight, is highlighting that there's a significance to the order in which Yitzhak and Shmuel are named. Don't think it's random. Don't think it's like a 50% chance of putting one name before the other and it's not significant, but rather see that this is something significant. This is precisely the Seva Tova, which is referred to in the Pasuk, namely that, it was referred to in the previous Pasuk, namely that Yishmael does Teshuvah. We will stop there. Um, in yes. Next week, we will finish Chayisara and we will start um, sure. very, very Toldot. Uh, thank you. We will end the share there. Thank you for having me. Thank you.